And, and we have a problem. I think we have a tendency, especially in, in the 21st century America, we have a really bad habit as Christians of spending all of our time in the New Testament. We have a, we have a bad habit of, <clears throat> of spending all of our time looking kind of at the end of the story, which is important and it's critical and we should do that. But what we do when we focus kind of on the end of the story is we don't really learn, listen, we don't really learn and understand everything that God has done for thousands of years to set up that grand finale of the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection and the return of Jesus. And so that's what makes the Old Testament so critical. That's what makes it so important that we study it is because once you go back, and once you look and, and you understand everything that God did to set up and to, and to point us to the grand finale, then all of a sudden the grand finale is going to mean more to you than it ever has before. Then all of a sudden the death and the resurrection of Jesus is going to mean more to you. It's going to have a depth of understanding for you than it's ever had in your whole life when you go back and look that God has been calling a shot from the very beginning. It's kind of like the, uh, the movie, The Usual Suspects. I don't know if you've ever seen that. If you haven't seen it, um, I'm about to ruin it for you. Um, but I don't feel bad about that because it came out in 1995. That was 20 years ago. You've had your chance, all right? So I'm going to ruin it for you. But the, the movie is about a guy named Kaiser Sose. I think you, I haven't seen it in probably 20 years. Um, but it's about this guy named Kaiser Sose. He's a bad guy. The feds are looking for him. <clears throat> and throughout the entire movie... Um, Kevin Spacey is being interviewed by the feds. And they're trying to, through this guy, they're trying to find this Kaiser Sosie guy, a real bad dude. And through the whole movie, they're interviewing Kevin Spacey. And at the end of the movie, in the very last scene of the movie, you realize, they reveal to you that Kevin Spacey, that they've been interviewing this entire time, actually is Kaiser Sosie, this guy that they've been looking for the whole time. And the right time, whole time, he was right underneath their nose. And it, com- it completely blows your mind. It completely takes you by surprise. My wife told me after the movie that she knew the whole time, but she's a big fat liar, right? You just, it completely blows your mind. And, but here's the thing. If you go back and you, and you watch the movie again, which everybody does, you realize that it was, it was totally obvious. The whole time they were dropping these massive, <coughs> huge hints that Kevin Spacey was in fact Kaiser Sosi, but you don't really understand that until you see the end and then come back and look at the beginning. And then once you do that, you watch it the second time, you realize how brilliant it is that they were setting that thing up. It was obviously being set up the whole time. And that's exactly how the Bible is, is that the, this ending, this ending of the grand narrative of Scripture is the greatest ending in the, of any story in the history of the world. Jesus Church... Jesus defeated sin and death and is going to return and bring us home to be with him forever. Amen? That's a good ending to a story. And, and, but here's the thing. You'll never really fully appreciate that in this life until you go back and you realize that God from the very start was calling a shot and saying this is how it's all going to end. And so <clears throat> that's a really long introduction. To understand that's why we're looking at the book of Exodus. It's why it's important. Yes, we're going to look at the stories. We're going to learn things from them. But ultimately, we're going to realize this is pointing to Jesus. And so let's jump in. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. All right. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. 
And Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel, listen to this, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. And they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, <coughs> they join our enemies and fight against us to escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field and in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. <clears throat> now here's what's going on. Here's the background. In verses one through seven, you realize that the family of Joseph and Jacob have come down from Israel because of a famine. That's where the book of Genesis ended. Okay, and the Israelites, they find themselves in Egypt and the scripture says that while they were there, they multiplied greatly. They grew exceedingly strong. So much so that in verse 7 it says that the land was filled with him. And this new king of Egypt, this Pharaoh, shows up on the scene. He didn't know Joseph because the old one did. <clears throat> and he looks around and it hits him one day that there's this people group. That's not, they're not Egyptians. They're large. They're growing. They're powerful. They have this completely different cultural and religious ethic than the Egyptians do. And it freaks him out. The Pharaoh kind of looks at the Israelites and it hits him. You know, there's so many of these people. They don't like us. We don't really like them. If they decide that they want to take over one day, they probably could do it. And so watch what the king of Egypt does. Look again in verse 13. It says, so they ruthlessly, that's the Egyptians, made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, here's what's cool. In the 14th verse of the book of Exodus, right there at the very beginning, 14th verse of chapter 1, not only do we see the the author of the book of Exodus um, begin to uh, develop and to reveal what is going to be the main theme of the book of Exodus that you're going to see throughout the entire book, but you also begin to see the first echoes of how Exodus ultimately points to Jesus. Look at verse 13 again, show you what I'm talking about. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field and all their work. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now I want you to look at the word hard service there. Hard service. That's the Hebrew word aboda. It means to serve. It means to serve or to work. And then three other times after they used the word hard service... They use the word work three other times. It says that, um, uh, and, and here's the thing you've got to understand, but even though they keep translating the word work three other times, it's the exact same Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word aboda. It, it's identical. They just The English translators translate it a different ways in the English, exact same Hebrew word. Now, so literally, this is what it reads. And let's look at it, another slide here, literally what it reads. It says, and they made their lives bitter with service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of service in the field and in all their service they ruthlessly made them serves a slave four times 
Four times in the same exact scripture, the author uses the same exact word. And it sounds boringly repetitive to us. We would never talk like that, but here's the thing I want you to hear. Is that the author of Exodus does this very intentionally because he's trying to make a point. And here's the point that he's trying to make right there in the beginning. Is that the lives of the Israelites were consumed with service to Pharaoh. Their their lives were utterly consumed with service to this foreign king. Okay, now, what does the text say that that was produced, that was the result of the fact that these people's lives were consumed with service to this foreign king? The scripture says that the result of that was bitterness. It says, and it made their lives bitter and service and mortar and brick and all kinds of service in the field and all their service. They ruthlessly made them serve and the result was their lives were bitter. Okay, now listen real carefully to me. Right there in verse 14, the author of Exodus is revealing the main, again, the main theme of the entire book of Exodus and here it is. And you're gonna see this over and over again. Is that when you serve, when you serve or when you worship anything or anyone more than you serve or worship God, the result will always be bitterness and destruction. That's the theme of the book of Exodus. When you serve or when you worship anything or anyone more than you are able to serve or worship God, the result will always produce bitterness. And you're gonna see this played out too. And the only, only in serving and worshiping God can anyone experience true and real freedom. That's the story. That's the theme of the book of Exodus. It's not just a story of God. Listen, it's not just a story of God freeing his people from slavery to Pharaoh. The book of Exodus is a story of God freeing his people from slavery to Pharaoh so that they can worship him and in doing so find real freedom that their hearts are longing for. That's what it's about. Now, here's why I say that. Here's where I'm getting this. I want you to turn in Exodus. Go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 8, verse 20. <clears throat> because that's when the, um, the hints stop and God just lays it out, that that's the theme of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 8, verse 20. All right, now before we look at that text, <clears throat> let me ask you a question. Um, when you think about the movie, The Ten Commandments, now I know that in, in the morning services at the, at the Austin Stone here in our downtown campus, the average age we found out is 27, so none of y'all have seen the movie. So there, let me just tell you, there was a movie called Ten Commandments, everybody watched it, that's over 40, and Charlton Heston uh, was the main character. And there was this main kind of cool line, everybody in America knew it, and it was the famous line where Moses, Charlton Heston, stood before Pharaoh, and he said, Pharaoh... Let my people go. That was like the f- best line of the, of the movie. It's a, just kind of the climax. Pharaoh, let my <coughs> people go. Famous line. Uh, famous songs have been written about that line. You know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, whoa, whoa, let my people go. Uh, no, bad joke. Anyway, y'all are too young for that one too. Um, but I learned something this week. I learned something this week that I'd never seen before ever in scripture. That that, did you know that that's not at all what Moses said to Pharaoh? Check this out, Exodus chapter eight, verse 20. And then it's through this that we learn what God's doing through this whole book. In Exodus chapter eight, verse 20, it says, then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, watch what God says from Moses to say to Pharaoh. 
Thus says the Lord, let my people go so that they may serve me. I didn't know that was in there. I just heard the let my people go thing. Charlton Heston got it completely wrong. (coughs) He left out, Hollywood left out, the most important part of the verse. Moses doesn't say, Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can do whatever they want. He doesn't say, Moses, let my people go. Let them free, set them free from slavery so that they can live their lives in any way that they want to live them. He, He doesn't say, Moses, or he doesn't say, Pharaoh, let my people go so so that they can be free from the bondage of slavery completely. God says to Moses, tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may serve me. God says, tell Pharaoh, free them from slavery so that they can be my servants. And that, again, is the story of the book of Exodus. It's not a story. It's not. It's not a story of God simply freeing his people from slavery in Egypt. The book of Exodus is a story of God freeing his people from slavery in the book of Exodus so that they would be free to worship the Lord. Okay? Now, I want to talk for a second, or they can find real freedom, rather, in serving the Lord. And I want to speak for a second to the people in the room today that may be either new to church or maybe non-believers that you're here. You find yourself in church this morning. I know that when you hear a statement like the meaning of the book of Exodus is that God freed his people from slavery to Pharaoh so that they could serve him and then doing that find true and real freedom. I want you to know that I know that when you hear that, that sounds absurd to you. I want you to know that I understand when you hear that statement, God set his people free so that they could serve him and in serving God find real freedom. I know that when you hear that, that sounds ridiculous. And here's why I believe that sounds ridiculous to some folks here in the room. Because I think it's very difficult for us to understand the concept of freedom in any other way than the way that our 21st century American minds understand and define the concept of freedom. You know, how do we as Americans, sitting here in chairs today, how do we typically define and understand freedom? Well, we, as Americans, the way we think and understand freedom is we define it as being in a position where nobody controls us. If nobody's controlling us, we think, well, we're free. If we're in a position where where nobody's telling us what to do, then we would say that we're free. If we're in a place where we we can do whatever we want, we can go whatever we want, whenever we want, if if we're not beholden to anyone or anything, we define that as Americans. We think that that's freedom. But here's what I want you to hear. Here's what I want you to consider today. The Bible defines freedom in a radically different way. The Bible says that, that, that real, true freedom is radically different than you just being able to do whatever it is you want to do whenever you want to do it. Okay, and here's the biblical (coughs) definition of freedom. The biblical definition of freedom is not that you serve no master at all. But the biblical definition of freedom is that you're serving the right master. Okay, world says freedom is you do whatever you want to do. The world says this is what freedom looks like. You have no master But the Bible says that real, true freedom is found not when you have no master, but when you're actually serving 
the right master. <clears throat> You're serving the right master. And the reason God says that that is true freedom, the reason that God says that's where real freedom is found in serving the right master, which is him, is that God knows something about your heart. He knows something about the heart of every person in the room. And the reason that he knows something about your heart is that he created you. And this is what he knows about your heart. Is that if you are not worshiping the Lord, if you're not in your life today <coughs> actively serving and worshiping God who created you, then what your heart will do is your heart will always, always, always go find someone or something to worship. It's true every single time for every single person. God literally created you and gave you life for the purpose of worshiping him. We talked about it last week, or I think two weeks ago. Did I preach last I can't remember. It's been a long week. But the last time I preached, I talked about it's what you were created for. And you'll never really find life until you're living for what you were created to live for. That's what God created you to worship him. It's why you're alive. And so if you're, <clears throat> if you're not serving and worshiping him, your heart will find something or someone to worship. Okay, and you know why that happens? Again, it's what we were created for. There is literally no such thing as a non-worshipping human heart. There's no such thing as that. So you're either worshipping God or you're worshipping something or someone. And the Bible actually has a name for that. The Bible has a name for when you or I <coughs> take something that, that, that ought to belong to the Lord, our hearts, and we give it to something other than the Lord. Um, when we pursue something more than the Lord, when we worship something more than the Lord, the Bible has a name for that. It's called idolatry. It's called idolatry. That's why the first commandment is, you shall have no other God before me. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. I, I love his quote as he defines idolatry. <coughs> Watch this. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Think about that. We probably all have idols here today. An idol is anything more important to you than God. And anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek or anything you seek to give you what only God can give. That's an idol. He goes on. He says, an idol is anything that you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel that my life has meaning. Then I know that I have value. I'll feel significant and secure. And there, there are many ways to describe, listen, there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but maybe the best one is worship. And so if there's anything, I love that, if there's anything in your life that you, you're looking at and you're thinking about and you're like, man, if I just had that, then that's going to give me meaning and that's going to give me significance and you're pursuing that more than you are the Lord, Keller says, I think probably the best definition of what that is, is worship. And there's no such thing as a non-worshiping human heart. There's no such thing. And what God is saying to us through the text, right in the very beginning, in verse 14 of Exodus, he's saying, if you serve or if you worship anything other than the Lord, it's going to, the result will always be bitterness. And that the way that you can find and the way that you can experience real and true freedom is not when you're serving no master, but when you are serving the master you were created to serve. And that is the Lord. Now I want to give you just an example of where um, God showed that this is true in my life. That this is not just some biblical theory, but this is actually true. I've experienced it in my life, and, and it was, believe it or not, when I was going through cancer. 
I, I was diagnosed with appendix cancer back in uh, 2005, 10 years ago. And uh, it was a random <coughs> call I got one day and I had an appendectomy. And they called me a couple days later and they said, we found this 1.9 centimeter malignant tumor in your appendix. It's removed. And we were kind of in this place where we didn't know if it had spread or not. And it's kind of cancer called a carcinoid tumor that if it spreads in your lymph nodes, there's nothing they can do. Chemo doesn't work. Um, radiation doesn't work. You just kind of have to wait around till you die. But if it doesn't spread in the lymph nodes, you, you never see it again. And some of the initial tests initially looked like it had spread. One of my lymph nodes was swollen. The tumor marker, <coughs> blood work was high. And the doctor called me and he said, you know, either the, the lymph node's swollen because of the original surgery and the tumor marker is high from the original tumor and there it go down or it spread and there's no way to know for about three months. And so I spent about three months of my life in this place where I, I didn't know whether I was going to live or I was going to die. And God did a, a pretty powerful thing in my life. But <clears throat> my first response to that phone call was really probably, I, best, I guess the best way to describe what I felt in those first moments and then in the days to come was, was just kind of an earth-shattering fear. I mean, I experienced fear like I had never experienced before. Um, fear, um, frustration, anger, bitterness, worry. Um, I, I would read the Bible through those days and, I would, and over and over again, you see the Lord saying, do not be afraid, <clears throat> do not fear. By the way, that is the, did you know that that command is in the Bible more than any other command of scripture? Do not be afraid and it just wasn't working for me. I was scared to death. And what God revealed to me was the reason that I was experiencing so much fear and so much frustration and anger and worry and bitterness is because I had a ton of things in my life that I had made idols. There, were a, there, were a bunch of, there was a bunch of stuff in my life that I was serving and I wasn't serving the Lord. For example, through the process, the Lord revealed to me I was serving the wrong master. I was serving not the person of Jesus, but I was serving um, ministry success. I had made ministry success an idol. And so when this idea hit me that, I'm, that, that, that ministry success could be over, that I'm dying, when that idol was threatened, it, <clears throat> it produced in my heart a fear like I had never felt before. I, I realized that I was serving an idol of comfort. I had made comfort one of my idols, this thing that I wanted and was pursuing. I, I was striving and working and serving for kind of this comfortable, easy life. I thought, oh, if I could get this, this, and this, and everything's going to be better. And when that was messed with, and then it just put me into this tailspin. I realized that I was serving an idol of this perfect picture of my family. I had this ideal picture of what my family was going to look like and that we were all going to, I was going to be able to raise my kids and they were all going to love the Lord and grow up and go to, go to college and get good jobs and we were all, I was going to get to hang out with my grandkids and live to 89 and die peacefully in my sleep and then all of a sudden this thing that I really wanted really bad was revealed to me and when God messed with that and, and started messing with that, it produced all this fear and anger and frustration and why, why was I experiencing all those things and the answer is simple, because the end result of idolatry is always bitterness. You were created to worship the Lord. You were created to put him first in your heart. 
You're created to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And when you love and pursue and seek all these other things, it eventually will always produce bitterness and destruction. And one of the things that God did mercifully to me through that cancer is through a process, and I won't tell you the whole story, but I've told it before from the stage, but he just really took my face and pointed it to him. And I had a moment in my office where I was on my knees and, and I really just surrendered. I don't know if you've ever been there with the Lord. I just surrendered the whole thing to him. I was tired of the burden. And I prayed this prayer. I said, Lord, if you, if you want to take my life, if you want to take my life, if you don't want me to pastor this church, if you want my family to be raised um, either in a single parent home or with an, an, uh, somebody else that my wife might marry. Lord, I just trust that to you. And in a very real sense, <clears throat> really for the first time, I think in my life since my salvation, I really and truly just kind of took the Lord and placed him on the throne of my heart. And I said, God, you're, you're what I'm going to go after with the rest of my days. Whether that's just a few days or whether I live a long time, I'm just, I'm gonna, you're going to be first. You know, and something really interesting happened. Something powerful happened in my life. Is I stopped almost instantaneously. I stopped worrying about what would happen to the church. I just trusted that God would take care of it. And you know what happened? Worry just went away. Worry about the future of you guys it just went away. I knew God would take care of you. I stopped serving the, <clears throat> the idol of comfort and I just started serving the Lord. And I said, God, I, I, I prayed this. I said, Lord, if, if you want me to walk through the fire with the rest of my days, God, I'm willing to walk through the fire because I know you'll walk through it with me. And you know what happened? Fear went away. I'm telling you, as God is my witness, almost instantaneously, fear that had crippled me for days and weeks was gone. I, um, I let go of the idol of having this perfect family and I said, God, I wanna trust you with my family and I know if you take me home to be with you, I know you'll take care of my kids, I know you'll take care of my wife. And I, and I stopped serving all these other things that I had made idols and for that season of my life, I definitely have not been perfect since then, but I, I served the Lord and I put him first in my heart. And when I did, I experienced, maybe really for the first time in my whole life, I experienced what I think the Bible is talking about, which is real freedom, true freedom. No bitterness, no fear, no worry. There was lots of peace a lot of contentment, and a lot of joy. Even though I was walking through cancer and I, I didn't have the answer yet of whether I was gonna live or I was gonna die, I was truly free. You know, and I think that's probably what Jesus was talking about when he said in John chapter eight, verse 36, don't turn there, watch what Jesus says. Jesus said in eight, uh, 36 of John, so if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. That there is a real freedom that can be found. There's a true freedom that can be experienced in your heart. And the only way you ever get there is when Jesus is the one 
that gives you that freedom. Church, real freedom is not found in you having no master. Real, genuine, true freedom can only be found when you are serving the right master. And I'll end with this question. Short message today. Do you right now, as you sit here, is there, as you think about your life, <coughs> your marriage, your kids, your school, your situation, your work, um, your life in general, are there some things that you could point at and say, that is a source of bitterness for me? This is a source of frustration for me. This is a, this thing, this person, this situation, this circumstance, this is a source of anger or maybe fear in my life. Could you, can you pinpoint something today and say, yeah, that, Matt, that's going on in my life right now. I think there's a couple things the Bible is trying to teach you today. And that's why it's entirely possible for you to point at that thing, at that circumstance, and say that circumstance is what's causing this bitterness or this frustration or fear. I think what the Bible's trying to teach you and what it's gonna teach you through the whole book of Exodus is that the root cause of that bitterness is probably that you're serving the wrong master. That the, the reason that there's this frustration and bitterness in your life is because you're trying to find something in that thing or that person that only God can give you. Okay, you made an idol out of something. That's probably the first thing. <clears throat> and the last thing is this. The other thing that God is teaching us today church is that God wants to set you free he wants to set you free he wants you to know today that it is entirely possible for you to be free from that bitterness from that anger from that fear and from that frustration and the answer this is all I'm going to say the answer is not found in a change of your circumstance or in better circumstance the the change is found and the answer is found in worshiping a better God and the better God is Jesus. When the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. All right? Let's pray together. And as I bow our heads today, <clears throat> very quickly, I just want to speak quickly to those of you in the room that do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior. I want you to know that this is the claim of Scripture that real freedom cannot be found in any other place but Christ. And I believe that with all my heart. And the best way you know how today, turn to him and find freedom. For those of you that are believers in the room today, I know that a lot of us, we have been set free by the cross and the blood of Jesus from our sin. We've been redeemed but in your life, you're running back to all these other taskmasters. You're running back to all these other things that are enslaving you. And I want you to know what the, what, the, what the claim of the Bible is, is that you have been set free so that you may serve the Lord. That is why God sets you free. And you'll never experience everyday real freedom in this life until you give the Lord your heart. Start pursuing all that stuff. And so before we sing today, <clears throat> I just want to give you a second to do that. Just confess to God that your heart's been going all, after all this stuff, and it's producing bitterness and fear and anger. And just surrender to him. Say, God, I want to give you my heart.
let him know that you want to feel and experience the freedom that Jesus promised he'd give us. Those who are in sin are a slave to sin, but when the Son sets you free, you're really free. Jesus, I cannot get into these people's heads and hearts and prove to them that the words of the scripture are true. But I know in my heart that they are. And so Holy Spirit, I pray right now you would reveal that to them. I pray that there would be people in this room that would surrender to you and find in you the freedom they've wanted and been looking for their whole lives. Jesus, we love you as we stand today and we sing. I pray that we would sing as a people that remember that we were created for this. That we were created by you and set free from our sins so that we would worship the Lord. And I pray that it would be a sweet sound in your ears. And I ask that today in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church, let's stand together.